Welcome to another Pine with Shawnee B. Good one for you today, folks. Uh, one of the world's most influential photographers over the past four or five decades. I'm very privileged that he's invited me to his home in Canada Water, uh, looking out over Canary Wharf. Brian Griffin has been a photographer primarily in the music business with all of the albums any of you who are of a certain vintage would have bought in the 70s, 80s, 90s. His name was on them. He made album covers for the New Romantic Movement, Depeche Mode, Susie and the Banshees, Elvis Costello, you name it, he's photographed it. He's recently produced a book called Pop, which is uh, 400 pages of beautiful album covers that he shot. And I guess probably interested to see vinyl making a comeback, are you? First of all, welcome to the show. I'm really happy being here. Thanks, uh, <laughs> Thank you thanks, for, for, even cons- thanks for even considering me, Sean. That's brilliant. You're a legend. Oh, I don't know you are. You are. I want you to be the legend, and no. I want to be this subservient uh, person being interviewed. Um, are you yeah. happy that vinyl's on its way back? Yes, I am, actually, especially as pop has been in gestation, can we say, since about 2008. So a good 10 years has been hovering around. Yeah. And it was really fortunate that over those 10 years that vinyl was making a gradual comeback. Mm. And making a phenomenal one eventually, and uh, and when pop was published, of course, you know the the people who are interested in it, the actual age groups had expanded massively. Everyone buying record decks yeah. again, you know. There'll so be a link a, to the uh, how to purchase a pop uh, on the blurb of the podcast. So just scroll down and find that. It is a beautiful, beautiful book and one for any record collector. What was your favorite album cover that you did? It's difficult. They were shot very close together. My first two album covers, and um, one of them was uh, Joe Jackson's Look Sharp, you know, which is regarded as like one of the covers of all time, you know. And the funny thing about it is that it was the easiest photograph I've ever taken in my life, Mm. you know. Okay, Sean, stand there. Stand where the light's coming down, you know, and stand there. And uh, okay, bang, finished. Bye-bye. Of course, Joe hated the sight of the women album cover. Never worked with me again. Really? And it's the most famous album cover on earth, virtually, apart from Sgt. Pepper. Why didn't he like it? Because he wasn't on the front. Uh, He was on the back, I think. And in Pop, the book, as you kindly mentioned, is in there a couple of times, so come on, Joe. But now he... He just didn't like it. But it's like so obvious, simple. I mean, it was even girls kissing me in the streets of New York, you know, that, after that cover. Weirdly, uh, do you know a guy called Graham Wood? Graham Wood. He did Tomato. Oh, I know Tomato. Yeah, he, he, did, he did a lot of album covers, a lot of album covers, so I'm sure he knows you. Oh, he but I ended, up in, I ended up in some bar in New York with Joe Jackson, uh, getting drunk with him one night, I think, about 10 years he ago. He actually drunk beer as well. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And what was the second one? Graham Parker's Parkerilla. Uh, that was probably the first one given to me by Dave Robinson, who was his manager, which I find is extraordinary that that is rated really highly. I find that quite confusing compared to some of the other covers I did that I regard to be much better. It just seemed like... You, a, did, you, you kind of fell into photography from the research that I did. You're, you're, you're from the Black... You're from Birmingham, right? Yeah, well... well tell us uh, your story from, from your early uh, ages. Well, I was born in a children's hospital in Birmingham. My mum had to go there and have me because she had to have 53 stitches to cover a wound that pulled me out of her body. I had to go to a major hospital because it was 1948 and um, you couldn't do it in the local hospital cesarean then. I don't think so. So I was born in Birmingham and all the brummers. What was was Birmingham like in the post-war sort of when you were growing up? What were your memories of it? Incredible. Really? I loved it. I remember, I mean, I used to... Well, I can see myself now in this little overcoat, my little short trousers, you know, my socks and my little shoes, and one of those caps that look like school caps, but they're caps that all the sort of boys' outfitters sold, you know, with some a nondescript badge on the front, just you know, William, just exactly, just yeah. William. And then I like Dad would take me on my little hand or whatever, take me down Steel House Lane. Going down Steel House Lane in Birmingham was a real incredible visual. I just thought you'd call it splendid, but it was full of guns. There were gun shops upon gun shops upon gun shops. There was everything from shells to little bullets. You know, there was everything from machine guns to bazookas to shotguns and everything. The main gun industry. And the whole city was very Victorian. Mm. Obviously, I mean, I grew up in the age of steam, you know. 
<laughs> shows how old I am. You know, you could hear the steam trains and coming into the stations, and the whole city of Birmingham was covered in like a never-ending fog. Smog. Yeah, like it would be like lightly coloured, so it diffused everything right to like you couldn't see your own hand. You Almost know, like a sulphur look. Yeah, it's all for yellow. Because I grew up in the black country, which was like 10 miles uh, to the southwest of Birmingham, where I lived in a town called Lye, which was real thoroughbred black country, which meant that uh, if I had been a Brummie, I would have spoken mostly English. Because I was a black country man, bloke as they call me. Every English word was black country so I couldn't speak English until I was about 14 what black country is hey and I and I gotta tell yo what yo'm doing I bet I bet you're gonna tell yo uh, where yo come from yo come from Ireland do ya it's not dissimilar to to yeah it's quite lyrical, you know, it's going, Whoa, it's, like Irish, it's, it's lovely, Irish, yeah, it's, it's like beautiful. Yeah. For, and I know a lot of people were imported in there, because as you know, it was an industrial region that's mm. where the world grew, you know, from the, the Industrial Revolution grew from there. I think people came from all corners of the UK, at least. Were you an only child, or did you? I was, yeah. yeah. Uh, sister died, um, sister who was a few years younger, uh, at the end of the war. She died uh, prior to childbirth, or at childbirth. So I thought, I think my mum decided not to have any more. I've had enough. I've lost a child and I've had to have 53 stitches to have this one, you know. I mentioned it a lot on my podcast, but the, it, it is something that I don't plan for. But the amount of only children that I have, for some weird reason, it's astonishing. Growing up probably with playing on your own or having to listen to adult company and, and there's definitely an education advantage. There's something that goes on there, I think. And also an independence. It's interesting because yesterday I was in a place called Derby and I was giving a talk to 125 young people. Quite a few of them were special needs. Mm-hmm. And one of the special needs students said, uh, did you find an advantage being an only child? Which I thought was a really great question, which mm-hmm. you just asked me the same thing, yeah. or virtually asked me. And I said, yeah, it was a, it's a great advantage because you can't go out to play uh, well, sorry, when you can't go out to play because it's raining or whatever, and you've got nobody to play with in home, you've got to invent your own games, you've got to invent, and you've got to you start using your imagination, you know? And you're going to spend more time alone than you would have to if you had brothers and sisters. So it just fertilizes your imagination, I think, yeah. being an only child. Did you have a happy childhood? Very happy. Yeah. Mum and dad. I can see when you're talking, just, yeah. I mean, you talk like a photographer because I can see behind your eyes that your picture, you seem to be able to <laughs> transport yourself back there oh, yeah, in can, your yeah. mind. I can visually at least uh, picture virtually everything, you know. Uh, did you have an artistic talent when you were growing up? Uh, in junior and infant school, I was the best painter, drawer, whatever they okay. call them, artistic one. When I moved to grammar school, I was one of two or three that were really good at it. So I think one became a sort of photographer that did like weddings in school right. groups and that. This one guy, I don't know, actually it's just me and him really, but we he bullied me a lot. I remember him bullying me a hell of a lot. Yeah. I used to fear him. We'd call him out, yeah. We'd send some of the boys around. Exactly, he bullied me. He looked like an ape, a bit like an ape. And he really bullied me all through grammar always school. Always bully a bully if you can. It's not always possible, but yeah. Oof. You didn't go to college initially, right? You went working down no, did into you? the steel business. How, how did that happen? That was horrible side. I mean, that's one thing. Uh, it, lightly, although it had a dramatic effect upon my life, that turned out to be a positive effect. But initially, it was the most negative effect I could ever think of. Mum and Dad told me I've got to leave school. I was one of the rare children that was actually studying grammar school uh, it was a technical school sort of a grammar school I was in for a lot of O-levels I was a fairly bright boy and I was obviously planning my future you know I was going to go do A-levels after I finished my O-levels and then I was going to go on to university maybe I was going to be a fighter pilot (laughs) which I did think about I mean your rich invention as a child was Anything's possible. Is, anything's possible yeah. and, and I, I wanted to be a bit of a hero or something maybe yeah. I don't know I was in the air cadets and stuff so I might have got in the RAF to be a fighter pilot and they said you've got to leave uh, got to leave school they needed money wow. they said we need your money you can't 
do your A-levels. You can't stay at grammar school, technical school. You've got to leave now. And people forget that happened a lot. I was devastated by it. Yeah. It, like, cut my life. Like, And I ended up in this, like, shed behind this fabrication company that made, they say, pressure vessels, like big boilers. And I, as a trainee draftsman, in this small fabrication company, and looking out the window of my little grubby, horrible little office, watching the rats play on the canal, which ran right next door to my office, just watching the rats. And, okay, watching rats is not too bad, but... You were 16. I was 16, yeah. And I thought, this is the end, you know? Yeah. And I did. I spent five years studying in engineering. And it was... The, I went down in the factory and the foreman down there in his brown coat, because he didn't wear blue, he wore brown, because he was the foreman. And he was hitting this bearing onto this shaft with a sledgehammer, and I was holding the wood of what he got a hit, of not the bearing down the shaft. And he said, have you ever been interested in photography before? I said, no, no. He said, why don't you come over to the camera club with me and see if you like it? So I did have a... Sorry? The chance of that happening is... Just just a pass. One in a million. Yeah. So I did get interested in photography. I wasn't intensely interested, but I did, and I carried on being interested. And then I moved from rapid conveyors, which made uh, conveyor systems that fed ready-mixed concrete plants. And uh, I went to Stewart's and Lloyd's, which became part of the British Steel Corporation, and I was in the estimating department. And I spent about oh, good two and a half years there, maybe, of my five years out. Good two and a half years. So this, the first thing is, there's a lot of people who, that would be it. You would then wake up one day at 60 going, ah, yeah, I did all that for the last 40 years. You know, you, you were very de- devastated by having to leave college. Were you still holding on to this idea, I'm going to make something, whether I'd be an adventurer or creative out of myself? Was that fire still always in you or were you resigning yourself to it? I think the fire was starting to, can you say, die down a bit. Yeah. When a traumatic occurrence happened to me, I'd gone to Catolica, which is on the Adriatic in Italy, with my, um, my mates from the uh, youth club. Left my girlfriend who worked in accounts and I came back and she'd gone and she'd left me. Left me in the sense that she wasn't around to my phone calls. There were dial phones yeah. in those days, nothing. Um, she upset that you went off with the lad. Uh, yeah, and she... But the thing, well, yeah, also, because we never made love to women. Yeah. Uh, we were brought up in a very Victorian way. Some of our friends had made love to women in the other streets and and unfortunately made them pregnant and a devastating effect that they had on their had on their lives as teenagers with young babies and that and that sort of put you off from doing anything with women a bit but this guy who worked in um, the department store in the centre of Birmingham uh, obviously made love to her which she probably desired and she decided to go with him and leave me so I faced the whole of my uh, existence and the time you know my life you know the commuting into Lloyd House to be in the estimating department every uh, five days a week uh, living in the back streets of the black country I thought well, how can I get out of this you know how can I get out you of this you on your own did you feel very alone I felt I felt desperate I know that yeah you know it was a two or two down terraced house you know, if you wanted a bath, you'd have a bath on Friday, maybe once a week, twice a week. You'd fill the tin bath with hot, hot water. You, I'd get in first because I was a youngster. Then mom would get in after me. And then daddy had the dirty water last. The water would only be two inches high anyway. And there was no hot water in the house until very later on when they had one of those Ascot boilers, you know. And then the water passes through and it gets hot. I thought, oh, God, I'm in the, I'm in the local camera club. It wasn't that fascinated but maybe this is an opportunity to get out and so I applied to some photography colleges and there were very few in Britain at the time got rejected by some but got accepted by Manchester and similar industrialised exactly do your parents needed the money but were they eventually sort of saying okay son off you go you've done your hard yards or were they still still awkward for you it was still awkward. Mom was very. Uh, I was twenty one then, mm. and like because I was twenty one, I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. They had no control over me, mm. and uh, Dad was devastated. Uh, Mom was accepted it totally, but both parents realised they could do nothing about it. Uh, you so, had a lot of responsibility on your shoulders that you were taking this risk. 
did you have a fear that you might fail or that it might not work out? Especially studying artistic things, which I guess back then was rare, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I also thought it was foolish because, like, for, the photographers uh, were portrayed as being dirty raincoat brigade almost. I mean, obviously, we know David Bailey was famous in that, that time, yes. but it was lo- looked at as a, like a, an upright profession, yes. being a photographer. It was like sc- a bit scuzzy, actually. And when Dad took me up in um, the, our Ford car and dropped me off, I could almost cry when I saw my dad go away. Me alone in this one-bedroom flat, you know, communal bathroom place up in uh, Pendleton in Manchester. I felt so alone. And then I didn't know if I was any good in photography either. I'd I'd run away. So I only realised that on the first day of term that I was any good at photography. Because we had to photograph an egg. First-day students had to photograph an egg in the studio, you know, put a lamp on it and photograph it. And the students were amazed at my photograph of an egg and the tutors. What did you do different? I, I can't even remember. I don't think I did anything different. Maybe I got it in the frame, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like the frame or something. And I breathed a sigh of relief, actually, when they said I was good, because I didn't think I was. I had no knowledge whether I was. I was in the beginner's class of the local camera club, but I'd stopped attending that. I found it really boring. Had you kept up your painting and drawing since the now? Gave up all that. We'd, I've got a discotheque called Plum, which was in the back of a pub. I did it with my friend John Crampton. At the time, I was this pyrobic engineering estimator. I remember coming back from Plum one night because I'd been on at Ironbridge Nuclear Power Station because I ended up in nuclear power section of uh, the estimating. Wow. Uh, I was just um, at the dawn of that. And the dawn of it, exactly. Yeah. We're doing a lot of estimates for power stations in Britain. And you, you had piles and piles of drawings, you know. It wasn't the computers, you know. It was mechanical adding machines. So it was 83 of us in this office. It was like a Franz Kafka trial you situation. Paint, you paint such a visual picture. It's like, I, I can see it in a movie or something, you know. It's terribly... Uh, terribly mundane and, oh. and, and, and you're a robot and it's oh. yeah yeah and all you looked at was the back door when like one of the guys would probably made love to one of the office girls down the back stairs and they, <laughs> they'd come back adjusting their clothing or something <laughs> and everything would go to the typing pool you know which you dictate on one of those dictating machines and they'd take the tape with them to the typing pool and there'd be like baskets at the end of the big desk where girls would be coming up and down women yeah, essentially no, no. Uh, they went to be sexist and dropping your or, uh, you know, your typed out yeah. um, stuff and stuff like that. And uh, you could smoke in the office. Yeah, I, I didn't I, smoke. I could when I started yeah. in Dublin, yeah. Jack Till opposite always had his, uh, had his pork pie second drawer down. <laughs> he was over me and me and Jack were doing the cooling water system and nuclear power stations. Jack would smoke, you know, and he smoked in a certain manner. Mm. I loved him, actually. And he'd have his pork pie, which he'd cut into four, or it was already in four. I can't remember the right. mustard on I've always liked pork pies, actually, <laughs> since I saw Jack Till eating his. So the college went well with photography. Then there had to be some time when you went to yourself, I'm going to try and make a career out of this. How did it develop into, from schooling into a career? Oh, God. I mean, that's <laughs> a journey and a half, that is. Talking about visual uh, memory, I remember my mum and dad, you know, that I'd got to make a go of this. Like I'd left home, I'd left my career that I'd spent five years developing, however poor or good it would eventually turn out. When I was 27, I would get a full wage. You know, I was at that moment, I was 21. I remember I took £12 a week home after tax. Mum and dad would take, they wouldn't take a lot, I don't know, four or five pounds of that. It was all right. And they did support me all through um, college and they gave me a couple of pounds a week or a pound a week or something because we got grants in those days. But I was under pressure to succeed. I really felt it. So I was a hard-working student, desperate to make it. I couldn't fail at it. I'd got to make it happen. When I look back, I, I mean, they all say I was quite good enough, but I don't think I was that good. I think people were rather flattering. But I had something. And by sheer freak some good photographers were in my year. So I did have people to talk to that were really inspired themselves. And I also was an art college, so I could meet fashion designers, I yes. could meet sculptors, I could meet painters, landscape designers, ceramicists. 
And it was a big melting pot of creative people. And uh, it was the hippie period. It was 60, you know, it was 69, it was, you know, High Tashbury, uh, San Francisco, the Mamas and Poppers, you know. What was I listening to? I was listening to uh, After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. The Doors. I was listening to The Doors. Beatles. Uh, I didn't like The Beatles. So you were Rolling Stones, man, were you? I wasn't even a Stones oh, man either. But most people can fall on one side of, the, of that. I fence. didn't like either of those bands. So um, you're big into your music. You had the disco. This was all prior to that. Yeah, yeah this was all in Manchester. No, the disco was in Wensbury in the Black Country. Okay, it was on a Wednesday night. It was called Plum, and we had a lot of interesting stuff. We played a, a lot of beef art. Played a lot of blues. And blues bands like John Mayall or Fleetwood Mac or. Uh, really good stuff and Robert Plant's wife used to come to it when he was away with other women in America or wherever he went she'd come every Wednesday night to our discotheque it was called the Progressive Disco there were all these progressive bands <laughs> so loads of them we were talking early 70s right we, we, now yeah, sorry so we, I, I told very late 60s because yeah. we've gone back a little bit yeah. and then when the Arcation bands had come to the student union every week you, but you, I, I haven't really touched on this fact you have music big in your life yeah just like any kid would have music bigger than life. And then where, how did you get to the point where you, or did you go, wait a second, <laughs> I'm, I like taking photographs and I like music. And did that happen or was there a break or was there a lucky chance meeting like we had in the factory? Or how did, you, how did it transpose out of college and into, into a career? Um, or was it? Or was, was your first photography break a wedding or what was it how did it get from oh I now can do this I now can make a living from photography and well I, I left uh, art college worked in a steelworks replacing the uh, the chains on the overhead cranes at uh, Round Oak Steelworks uh, during the summer break and then I went down to London I mean I'd been down to London on a brief visit I knocked on doors because this is the days before social network before mm. computers before mobile phones it was a case of, you know, knocking on doors, literally. It was even hard to find places, wasn't it? And like, they're showing a portfolio. Yeah. They'd look at the student's folio and try and see some potential and go, oh. Were you going to ad agencies? I was going to magazines. Right, okay. uh, I wanted to be a fashion photographer, which didn't work out, obviously, at the time. And um, I, I walked the streets. And then I came back, worked in that steelwork, as I said, for a few weeks. And then went back down with the money I earned and got my first flat. Invited my mates who'd been studying at college with me. And we moved into a house in Wimbledon Park. And I walked the streets. I even came around here, down the Docklands, everywhere, to try and find myself a studio space, an office space. And eventually, again, I gave up. Uh, I started to look in the British Journal of Photography for a job. I got disillusioned a bit, so I applied to be, a, to be an assistant, which I, I didn't really want to do, with Lester Bookbinder, who was really probably the foremost creative uh, still life photographer in London at the time. I went to see him. He looked through my portfolio, which I thought was good, but I know like it's like... And uh, he said, don't be an assistant. You've got to be a photographer. Right. And I went, oh, all right. Uh, he said, go and see this, I'm going to phone this man up. And he phoned this guy up called Roland Schenk. And I went to see Roland uh, in a big building on Oxford Street, quite near Oxford Circus. And he said, let's go downstairs and have coffee and a cake together. So I went downstairs and there were very creamy cakes, I remember. <laughs> I he, had a, I he had a creamy cake. <laughs> I had a creamy cake. Yeah. And I dived right into that cake. He said, can't you wait for a cake fork? Ooh. I went, oh, no. Oops, Oops I've blown it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And um, he said, would you like to become staff photographer on the magazine? Because wow. the, the guy who was on the magazine was just, at that point in time, leaving. Wow. And you need that in life. It was just sheer luck. Um, so that was the break. But uh, carrying on to the music industry, was that I've always found that my best ideas my breaks in life have been through really fundamental thought patterns and this was a real fundamental thought I went well I'd spent before I, I did my first arm cover I'd spent five years photographing people in suits business people uh, Roland gave me that job 
which was at that time regarded as the most boring photography mm. that anyone could. Handshakes and stuff. Oh, so boring. It was yeah. below wedding photography. Yeah. Wedding photography now. Yeah. Wedding photography is the top photography now. Yeah. Then it was the, the, the worst. But photographing people in suits was below it. But I thought, I've got to make a go of it. You know, I've got to make this happen. You know, under a lot of pressure to make my career happen. A year and a half later, I took a photograph similar to that egg mm. back at that art college where I photographed people going to work across London Bridge in the morning. And I realized I'd taken a world-class image 18 months after leaving college, a world-class image, and still is one of my greatest photographs. How do you know? Do you just know? Just know it through your own intelligence. Gives you goosebumps. It gave me goosebumps. And I'm like, oh, I could have fainted. I don't want to fainted, really? screamed or what. I thought, I'm going to make it. Mum and Dad, because now they turned full circle and bought me a second-hand Leica camera mm -hmm. and a gold watch for being uh, getting a distinction at college, oh, a okay. top student Great. distinction. So, you know, they, yeah. they after three yeah, years, right. they gave me all those beautiful things. And I went, thank God, I'm really going to make it, you know. It just happened in front of me. Does, it, does one photograph can change? It can, nearly. Really. When I say it changed me, it was used so small in the magazine. Yeah. It didn't make me famous, the picture, but I knew it was a great image. Yeah. The art director, Roland, used it really like a thumbnail. I got this photograph of commuters now in the V&A, and then when there was a celebration of 150 years of photography, it was isolated and put in the show at the Victorian Albert Museum as one of the images well, we've of 150 sure years. We've got a link to this photograph. What was the photograph saying? Well, mundanity what a, of work or life yeah or? mundanity in a sense it was people commuting in the morning they went off to infinity in the images you know like yeah. a crowd of people going off to infinity it was shot through the back window of a, a cab I told the cab to drive slowly across the, the bridge London Bridge as I photographed through the back window it was inspired by Metropolis uh, yeah, a very Fritz famous Fritz film Lang. by Fritz Lang yeah. a German expressionist film and I knew it was a great image I'd taken, and I knew I could make it then. Because I'd only been out 18 months, a guy 18 months at college took a world famous, it's just incredible. That image and that mundanity though, when you describe that factory that you were drafting yeah. in, it's the same feeling. There's absolutely no humanity, and people are robots at a time, and computers at a time before there were computers really. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you think about it, one of the big complaints we have today with our phones is that we're kind of disappearing a little bit into those devices rather than, you know, living. Mm. Is that fair? Or am I, I, being I think it's... No, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, what's interesting about the smartphone, obviously the camera within the phone has developed... It's we're immensely powerful then. now. Yeah, exactly. What's been interesting about that is I've very rarely ever used the camera in the smartphone, although it's a very trendy or a very modern approach to photography now. Very serious photographers use the smartphone. Mm. I don't. I don't do it, and it seems to help me in a way have a little bit of a barrier because my own medium is actually within the phone. I could utilise, yeah. utilise probably well because mm. they're really excellent cameras. I don't. So maybe that's, a, that's a, not again like a natural safety device that's playing. Or when you pick up a camera, it's showtime. Yeah, because I don't right. pick it up that often. Yeah. I pick it up when I'm going to really do something, a project yeah. or whatever. And I, I, I've put a lot of thought into what I'm going to do. So like if we go back, you know, again to the, when I took that picture across that bridge, my life then was... A camera bag, really, with a, a, the Leica in. And then I got an Olympus camera a couple of years later, which is a, an SLR, you know, mm -hmm. through the lens instead of a rangefinder. Made life a little bit, composition a bit easier because I could see everything. And although I've been trained with a viewfinder, so I mean, I, you know, which is an odd camera to compose well with. And um, I didn't have any lights or anything, you know, and I'd just get the train everywhere to do these portraits. And I'd cry my eyes out coming back if I didn't do a, a good picture. I mean, I was really, really driven. I was really, really ambitious. Mm. I was total. No distractions. I love my speedway racing, motorcycle speedway racing. Always have done. But no girlfriends. I didn't have any girlfriends around me. I had friends that were women, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love women. Yeah. But 
I was absolutely focused. What did and your friends say to you then? Did they notice this? Oh, God, I'm sure they all did. You know, I was like, I forsaked everything. You know, if there was a party and I'd got to do something, I wouldn't go to it. If there was an important personal date for some reason, uh, I wouldn't go to it. If photography would always come first in every way. And it carried on through most of my life. How important is that for your success? Vital. You've got to be totally, you've got to be totally focused. You can't be uh, half interested. Ten thousand hours is the thing that the guy over in uh, America kind of came up with this thought that you know you have to spend ten thousand hours to become great at something. That's a lot of hours. A lot. It's ten years. It's, it's a lot. Five to ten years. Well, I've I've actually I actually say to you, Sean, that I have devoted, not say I've utilized it. But I've opened myself up to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, since I became a photographer. I've never, ever been unavailable, ever, in my career. Amazing. Ever. And still going. And still going. Okay. Do you think, without us going down the track of kids these days, but do you, when I was working in the ad business, people coming in and looking for jobs, and they were very, you didn't see the same level of, dedication, commitment to hard work, feeling like it's all going to land in my lap, and if it doesn't well, so what? Is that a fair analysis of maybe where the world is going to, or is it a bit too grumpy old manish? I think uh, <laughs> I actually see that. I, I was delighted yesterday uh, that I gave this talk. Yeah. yeah, they're all in their teens. They were all totally focused. And I was nervous prior to giving the talk because I'd given talks before to undergraduates. And many, many, many of them. And all I can see is faces being lit up by smartphones because they're not listening to me. They're looking at their Facebook or, or uh, WhatsApp or whatever. And so as I journeyed up to Derby yesterday, I was slightly dismayed. I saw you very nervous. I would have to perform over the length of time for people who are interested. Yeah. When I can see in front of me, I'm confronted with a lot of people who are not interested whatsoever. So when all these people were interested, I was absolutely delighted because most of the time, I find most photographic students quite lackadaisical. They're not really focused. They don't really put the effort in. Yeah. There's a, a, a suspicion I have, though, that the generation behind me... So let's say I'm a generation behind you, the generation behind me and the other one behind them, I think it's where all that flabbiness is. But I think the younger kids today are realizing things like, you guys have made a mess of this. And when you say that you were up in Derby with these teenagers, I think the teenagers of today who were, not, were never around without a, a smartphone or technology, but they've seen the kind of mess that we all kind of climb at whatever the hell, and they realize they're the ones who are going to have to fix it. So things like, I was reading today, they can organize demonstrations in the streets of Dublin in two days to complain about climate change or whatever it is. They can galvanize themselves and they're nicer and kinder and they're not about selfishness and getting ahead of your friend. You know, it's not a rat race. And I, 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 my, I have a little bit of spark of, of optimism in that regard, and which you know, I think you just Which noticed. I felt. I think you're right. No. Uh, most definitely. Over the last few years, I've almost found talking to undergraduates almost repellent. I've always yeah. not enjoyed it whatsoever. When I've spoken to MA students, actually, I've really been engaged. I mean, as I say, when I spoke to these... They're slightly older. Older, yeah. They yeah. could be anything up to our ages. Yeah. Or, they tend to come back from other professions. They could have been doctors. They could have been whatever. Yeah. You can do an MA in photography. You don't have to have done a master's of anything. Yeah. You better be interested. In I find that really engaged. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's really good. But the undergraduates has been like a real... Oh, it's been awful. I'm not saying all of them. I mean, obviously, there's some great ones, of yeah. course, are very attentive to someone like me. You know, because you've got this grey-haired geezer coming in to talk to you, you know, and some of them... Is probably... that something you do just to put back? I mean, because there's been a bit like the music business that you were so involved in, there's been a danger that photography might die. Is there a part of you that feels, I have to make sure that I do my bit to keep the profession 
alive. I feel very much that. My latest project is very much like that. What's your latest project? Uh, Spud. Uh, I mean, it's very Irish, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I have to Instead of an that. egg, you're photographing a potato in a certain way. That's great. Spud is really putting back, to answer your, your question, Spud is really putting back because I'm still working and Spud has become relatively well known. And it was a major exhibition in France, but go straight to your question first before I talk about Spud. Is the sense that... Uh, everybody realises that I'm still doing projects and working. And I, I find that really important that, like, that students or young photographers or whatever, or people much younger than me doing photography can realise it's possible mm. to grow right into your, you know, <laughs> uh, later well, there's life. there's no retirement date. I no. Mean, the people who are in that office with the papers, there's yeah. a version of them today. Somewhere. They've gone already, but, haven't they? Yeah. 65, yeah. Uh, 55. I can't wait to get out. I can't wait to get out. And become bored, probably. I'm still doing it. So, you know, all those young people can see that you can still keep going. Mm. And because I'm so, um, whether they like my work or not, they're really interested in it. Because mm. this is a bloke that age still doing it. We, we want to see what he's doing. They might think it's crap. They might think it's brilliant. I, I mean, I'm happy to accept anybody's opinion. Uh, you don't need critique anymore. I don't know. I don't need it. I don't care about it. No. I mean, any vulnerability I ever feel is when I'm first doing something, I feel unsure. Yeah. And then I overcome that. And then I get confident. Then I go out and look at painting. I go out and look at other art. And I feel, well, what I've done is not that bad, actually. Yeah. And I don't uh, detect any strain of arrogance or aloofness in you. You, you have this memories of, of important things that you did well. And hard work and dedication. Mm. So at this age, you're not kicking back and going, I know it all, because I can still see the mm. wonder that you kind of think about things. But I guess it's just important for people not to get too big for their boots. And, and that's that's the road to the to ruin as well. Because you keep working and you keep saying, you, are you always trying to find the best picture? The picture you've never taken. Or do you think yeah. you've done that? Um, what excites me certainly is to find that picture. And the, the method of finding that picture has altered tremendously over mm. my career. Now I put a lot of thought into a project. I use literature, I use film, art, you know, going to see paintings, uh, books, everything. I, I keep, you know, feeding myself with all these inspirations and that. And then I get focused on the project. And if I can produce something, an essence of my project, and I look at it and say to myself, that's the best photograph I've ever taken in my life. And I can still say that. Because I am right. constantly worried, though, that I'll, I'll see that I can't anymore eventually. Yeah. So I think it's all, I've got an organic brain, you know what I mean? It can't go on forever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's well, like, yeah. I can try. To let it There's also going. the fact that if you keep, it's, it's an exercisable organ. And the more you keep exercising it, the more it'll stay well, with you. Well, I know I'm going to live longer because I'm still working. And I am doing that partly for my own uh, mortality. Because mm -hmm. I know I'll live... Uh, photographers who work through their life live quite a long time. Mm -hmm. I know other musicians or whatever, yeah. other art forms. But if you work at your art form, keep working at it, you can have quite a long life unless something unfortunate happens to you. Because I know so many photographers that retired years ago, and I know so many photographers, although didn't retire, their work, can we say, is not so strong. Yeah. And their last strong picture could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And a lot of photographers who don't really do it now, they took great images, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. There's a lot of that around. But photographers who, can we say, in their later years, like me, like really into it, uh, we're a rare commodity. I want to get back into the nuts of the mu music business in oh, right, yes. chronology. But before we do, maybe just since we're on this, just maybe briefly give a summary of what Spud is about. Spud is about the First World War. It's uh, a book about the First World War. And uh, if I had been born 117, 118, 116 years ago, I know I would have volunteered to become a soldier. I couldn't have become an officer. I wasn't educated enough or come from the right stock. I would have been an infantryman. I know that. And I know that I would have been expendable uh, amongst many millions. I know that maybe the first time the whistle blew and I went over the top, 
a machine gun bullet which they sprayed in arcs mm-hmm. would have taken me down maybe immediately. It would have been a miracle for me to survive the war. I went to the Western Front. Batoon is a town on the Western Front. It was where the British barracked themselves. And of course, I read Robert Graves, you know, obviously. Yeah. He was barracked there. And he has been quite an influence upon Spud. But what I was shocked and delighted with at the same time is they saw very flat land where, like, right around northern France. And uh, they're growing potatoes in the battlefields. And then as I came back to Beitoun, I passed the McCain oven chips factory. So all the potatoes <laughs> coming out of the battlefields are being made into oven chips and, of course, French fryers. So I saw all those, which potatoes are like tubers on there, whatever they go, yeah. in the ground, like a root yeah. vegetable in the ground. And I saw, again, there's still thousands of bodies in the ground, because I've read so much about that war, and parts of bodies and blood soaked deep into that soil. And I saw the potatoes, and I saw the oven chips uh, being fertilised by people. people. And that really inspired me. So I had, I had the hook for my project. I went, oh. Again, that feeling with that, that set of people commuting over London Bridge um, or getting my first job, you know, and uh, I was offered it on Management Today. Oh, another one of those feelings. You need an idea. I mean, you need yeah. A, yeah. Because I saw myself with Spud. I'm, I'm a potato. I saw myself as a potato. I saw the thousands of tons of potatoes coming. It works 24 hours a day, by the way. And they don't stop making fryers. Because there's millions of people like the millions of potatoes. And I saw myself as a simple potato, not really thought highly of in society. I was just like an expendable spud, really. Uh, I don't know. Um, Very good. Yeah. I could nothing. Uh, you know, if I'd have been 117 years old, you know, I would have been expendable. I was gone. Let's get another one. I'd have joined up as well because I wanted to go to yeah. RAF. I was in the air cadets. Yeah. I would have put my hand up and joined. Maybe I, I wasn't educated enough to go in the flying corps. I'd probably go in the infantry. There's a new movie out uh, where they've colorized the... Uh, I want to see that. And this whole idea, like when I listen to you talk today... In my mind, your life is black and white. <laughs> you know, your stories about your youth and the black country and, and that just talk about I'm that. I'm honest, which is black, in black and white, it's expression, yeah. I'm honest, yeah. And I would then see your record work. Very, I know some of your greatest album covers were black and white, but I would see that as a colour story, mm-hmm. if, it's, if that makes any sense. So it's very weird to see that war movie with... It makes people more, uh, less expendable. It makes them real people for some reason, just by adding, you know, their skin really good. tones. Very good, very good. You know, which uh, I'm getting that vibe from you. The, the, let's go now just to the sort of meat of, of where you where you made your name, which would be probably the music business. You talked earlier about your two favourite album covers that you did, both of which you said were quite early. How, how did that all manifest itself for you? Again, uh, repeating a theme uh, was one of my most basic thought patterns. Um, I've found that all through my life, as I said before, that if the basic thoughts have really heralded or really developed a, a new start in life for me or pushed my life forward, accelerated it forward, just a basic thought. So the basic thought was, well, I see the jam. Uh, I see Elvis Costello and the attractions. They're wearing suits. I've been photographing suits for five right. years yeah. for business magazines. Why don't I go, I love music, why don't I go to a record company? They were all starting then, independent labels were starting mm. all over the place. And ask them if they give me a job, because I can photograph suits well. <laughs> so I went simple. to Stiff, and it was really that simple. Wow. Okay. But I wasn't given a suit to photograph, I was given um, a Graham Parker. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, he was jeans and jacket man, really. Not really suit and tie like a, a jam. It was your calling card. They gave you a job, right? They gave me a card. Take oh, photographs. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned at the start that a lot of the artists, like they're A, hard to work with. Is it because they don't really care about, I mean, something so important as an album cover, as a branding guy in advertising, it's like, you've only got a few shots. You've got your music, you've got how you look, you've got your stage show, and you've got the merch, you know, and how it's packaged, the packaging of your band. 
Was it a lot of them just didn't seem to get that, did they? They didn't get it. They, they felt they were surrendering themselves for an occasion, i.e., in my studio or whatever, that they didn't want to um, attend. Uh, you might get one or two members of a band, you know, showing keen interest. It was always the drummer that was never interested. There's a joke about it. Everyone knows Hello, the drummer. Ringo, if you're listening. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry, Ringo. I really, actually, Ringo, I, I did an album cover for you, didn't I? And uh, I really enjoyed being with you. But drummers were like, ah. Oh. They didn't like it. And um, I hated photographing bands because it was just just a bit short of mayhem most of the time. Someone would ask me what I was doing tomorrow. And I'd say, oh, I'm going to photograph te- uh, the new Teardrop Explodes album. He'd go, well, the new Teardrop Explodes. Wow, you lucky thing. I'd go, oh, <laughs> you've got to be joking, haven't you? I'd be regretting it before it happened, you know. And, and regarding advertising, brand management, you were saying earlier about your profession... I mean, advertising agencies would come into my studio in the 80s and they'd leave, you know, there'd be props left behind. It could be anything. And I'd use those props for the album covers or the publicity of the bands and incorporate them in an idea. So give me a story of one of the most mayhemic shoots that you went on. I read one about Iggy Pop pissing in a bin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was pretty... He was mayhem. Yeah. Uh, Iggy was just... I was excited about doing him because if you have a solo artist that's normally great to photograph solo artists and they all have been fabulous subject matters but he's extremely photogenic and he's extremely because that is such an important element I think to him because he's a great performer and he's a great presence you know physical presence he was at the time he's very fit agile great body very inventive with his body I mean he was a gift Uh, I hired a studio in um, Notting Hill Gate and we came to that. Prior to him coming to that studio, I was taken by Al McDowell, who was the main man in a company called Rockin' Russian. And Al took me to meet Iggy. Al McDowell now has just designed, just been the production designer of the latest Star Wars movie. <laughs> He's right at the top of Hollywood now. A very talented man. I was delighted to work with him. But he left me to do my thing, which is great when you've got someone, rather than somebody coming in who's like, I haven't got much talent, telling you what to do, mm. which happened a lot in advertising. Of course. But he was Often really talented. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have to fight your tongue. And he came, but I respected him because I knew he was a great, great artist himself, mm. painter, everything. So he took me to see Iggy, which was down near London Bridge in a rehearsal studio. There were a couple of punks in there from punk bands. <laughs> really nice guys, actually. Brian James from The Damned and Glenn Matlock from The Pistols. Um, he had a really, really good band. Uh, he said, because you can't call him Iggy, you can only call him Jim right. or James. He'll accept James or Jim. Good to know. Really good. I mean, Paul's <laughs> was a bit like that, but that's another story. <laughs> Paul's another one like that, but he was. Oh, well, no, Paul uh, McCartney. Oh, and uh, he just tried to freak me out a bit. You know, he just bought the plastic flip-top kitchen bin over, you know, pulled that flip-top bit off the top, whipped his penis out and peed in the bin, right in front of me, like right next to the toes of my shoes. Looking you in the eyes. Looking me in the eyes, see how I'd respond to it. And I obviously passed the exam, you know. And uh, then I photographed him in this high studio and he's like, Wow! Because he, can we say, he was influenced by certain things. One thing about photography, you can't be influenced by any form, not even alcohol, nothing. You've got to have like a really clear mind. Photography doesn't adapt itself very easily to influences, external influences. You know, whether it's a drug of a drug basis or alcohol, but whatever. You can't use those sort of things. Not you, least because all your shots are probably being focused. <laughs> <laughs> True. And also, what's really funny, you look at your photographs as well, uh, if you are in that sort of condition, and they all look crap. <laughs> so therefore, how can you possibly take a decent picture? So he's it, basically stoned out of his tree, and he's yeah. just trying to, and he just trying to get like a reaction out of you. Al then went off, because Al, uh, who I talked about, Al McDowell, uh, McDowell from Oregon, Washington, his company got commissioned to do the videos as well as the stills and the single bags and everything and the publicity. He got the whole package. And I went off to do my next job, which was to photograph a medium called Doris Stokes, who was the world most famous medium in the world at that point in time, the late 70s. You know, she was mega. Have you any truck with that palaver? Well, I'm now going to go on to tell you about okay. it. 
Do you want me to go on about it? Of course it? I do. Okay. <laughs> a small, medium, at large, please. So I, I drive up to Halifax on the night after photographing Iggy. Halifax is a long way. To un- as an unfortunate musician, close to my wife primarily, uh, from a band called Los Olvidados de Paranoias, I think they're called. Yeah, I heard of them, yeah. 70s. Who unfortunately was dying. So I went into the hospital, into his ward, be next to him with my wife. But I had to leave because I got to photograph Doris Stokes in the morning. So I drove back through the night. And then uh, in the morning, went across to uh, Chelsea where Doris Stokes lived. I got there first. It was for Tatler magazine. Sat there with Doris. Then there was a knock on the door. Then Georgina Howell, who was the main, one of the main journalists on Tatler, had paid money for Doris to give her a reading. She came in with a guy called... Um, can't think of his name now, but he was writing a book on uh, extrasensory perception. Mm-hmm. He sat to the left of me. Georgina Howe sat at the far end of the small room, and Doris put her back to me. And I'd been phoned up by my wife that unfortunately this man had passed away in hospital Overnight. during that night oh, as I drove back. And so she starts reeling out all this stuff for Georgina that she's receiving. And it was all about my the de- the, my dead friend who died that night. About him and his wife and his girlfriend and everything. So, whatever. So, anyways, in this book called Hidden Power, by, sorry, I remember his name, Brian Inglis it is, right. on page 154 or something, he talks that about story, that it? occasion, you know. And anyway, I came back from doing Boris Stokes and I had a small flat in Acton and there's a note under the door. I picked up the note, it says... Brian, come round the studio immediately. Iggy's throwing a fit because you're not here. Now, I wasn't commissioned to do it. I, 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 he wanted me, Iggy did. So I had to quickly jump in the hire for this escort. You're, never, you're always available. Yeah, I'm always available. <laughs> so I drove to the other side from Acton down to Kennington, where the mm. studio was, and Iggy was throwing a riot. He was like going in mayhem. He, they, they were filming him in Mayhem because it was right. interesting. He was, I remember he's holding one of those workers' lights with like a cover around it, yeah. a light bulb, and put it under his head. He's in the video, actually. Yeah. And he's crazy, going crazy. But he's not adhe- adhering to any of the script yeah. that they'd written. So I turn up, and he calms down. And I light this fridge and this backdrop really quickly because we're going to do a, a film called Dog Food. And Al McDowell had got this little toy dog and he put the toy dog in the bottom of the fridge and Iggy gets in the fridge and starts freaking out and goes on top of the fridge and does stuff. Because he's brilliant performer. Yeah, yeah. Sensational. Yeah. And, I, and, and I've lit the whole thing and that's filmed. And that's what the dog food video is. And then the next day he wants me to go again. We go to a hotel in uh, Rathbone Place in uh, just of Oxford Street in London to film him in this, uh, in this room. And he's in a body stocking because he likes showing all both his genitalia yeah, yeah, and yeah, his yeah. body. And he keeps on to me. He wants me to lie on top of him in the bed and be filmed with me in bed with him. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm afraid I, I prefer ladies uh, to men, yeah. you know. I'm not going to do that, James. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Mr. Pop. <laughs> yeah. And then, I, then, I, then he, has, he takes all his clothes off. He goes in the bath, in the bathroom, and I, and I light the bathroom and f- f- film him in there. And that's the last time I, I saw Iggy, yeah. 1979, I think. Wow. What is it that captures... How come when I see some portraits, I go, you know, well, it's really caught the essence of who that person is. How... how... It's... How hard you are as a photographer. You know, most of the great portraits are done by photographers that exhibit a lack of feeling towards a subject, but display superficially sensitivity. You're just a manipulator of the subject. You're going to manipulate that subject to do exactly what you want them to do for you, because that's how you see your portrait of that person. Do you think it's better for you, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think it's better for you to know the subject well no. in order to capture it? No. You don't need to know them at all. It depends. I mean, sometimes it's really simple because there's something obvious that surrounds the person physically in their room, in their office, in their, their mm. space. So you can bring that in, engage with that. 
and then implant your own artistic knowledge on top of it. Or you might have something to say about the person, like if you take Arnold Newman's photograph of Krupp, the big German uh, uh, industrialist, and yeah. the way he, you know, because they supplied certain things in the Second World War, so he did a hatchet job on him because he's a, a Jewish man, Arnold Newman, the great American portraitist. And all the really great portrait photographers in the history have implanted themselves into that portrait. Mm-hmm. And by, because they're implanting it in, uh, into it, it actually gets really strong because they're putting all themselves into the portrait. And then they leave because they, they have a f- complete understanding that portrait won't be great without at least minimum of, say, t- I'm being quoting figures here, at least 10% of that person brings something into it. They always do to make it... When a great portrait happens, the subject always puts that magic element in on top of all that manipulation, all that, all that, that you've got them into this, this frame. Though, right? They do it unintentionally, yeah, un- unintentionally. You've got to spot it on top of what you've implanted. And you tend to find that all the most powerful portraits are done that way. I think it's never like a person like laughing, smiling, moving, you know, and taking lots of pictures. I never took many photographs ever. I would take one roll, maybe two rolls, maximum. Twelve is twelve frames, so I use the Hasselblad, the square format portrait. So twenty-four shots, maybe maximum. What was Paul McCartney like? Did you have fun with him? Well, I had. How did you get into directing? Like, because you did you you direct as well, right? Yeah, uh, I, I worked a month with Paul, off and on. He was going to go back into Abbey Road mm-hmm. and he wanted to record an album in that studio. So I was taken to meet him at Abbey Road Studios. I had to go for an interview with him. He asked me what was my upbringing and everything. And uh, I was told before going for the interview, don't mention the Beatles. <laughs> so I didn't mention the Beatles. And apparently I ticked all the boxes because I came from a, a back street in the black country, a working class lad. And that was a big boxes That's to tick. Him, yeah. What we had to do was um, light the whole of uh, Abbey Road and light cleverly the positions where he would play the piano, play the bass guitar. We wouldn't see dies his dyed hair you know it wouldn't be that horrible red that people dye their hair when they get old and stuff uh, he, he'd look good but it was left for a month a whole of the studio lit <laughs> and I got to produce in one day a three minute film of him and then show it to him on the Monday and he'd have a look at it and see if he liked it or not I sat in a, I'll never forget it I sat in a small room a uh, machine in front of me and uh, somebody there to put the U-matic, U-matic tape in the machine. Yeah. And there was a small sofa opposite it. It was one of those two-seater sofas. I had watched in the 60s when the Beatles were at Shea Stadium. I watched them coming to Heathrow with all the girls screaming. I watched how big they were. They were, like, massive. Bigger than God. They were, yeah, that's what John Bigger said. Than Jesus, yeah. And uh, he, was, he sat down next to me, and I felt all his leg all the side of his body and his arms rubbing against my body. It was an interest, like Jesus. Biblical moment. Yeah, almost a biblical moment, yeah, because he was so massive in the world. And there was this man sitting intimately. It's very interesting the way you describe it. And a nice guy, by all yeah? Yeah, a really nice man. Yeah, yeah. He liked what I'd done. But I'll never forget one thing. I stood, there was a moment in the studio, he got his, uh, off on the bass and his headphones on just me and him in Abbey Road down on the studio floor. And he said, Bry, he started calling me Bry. And he put his arm around me once as well, which was like quite, I shivered almost. (laughs) And uh, he said, over there was John, over there was Ringo. Oh, Ringo was back there with the drums. And there George was there. And he pointed to the Yoko places. <laughs> and that was quite a moment. Because of my I age. I can see how touched yeah. you are by it. But you also yeah. said at the top of the podcast you didn't really like the Beatles. I didn't crazy. really like the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, I quite like Robert Sower. Where a please, please me, I want yeah. to hold your hand and all yeah. the very beginnings. What's the, what's the photograph in the world that you wish you'd taken? Well, it was a photograph I tried to beat. Hmm. And I was totally defeated every time I attempted it. It was the portrait by Arnold Newman of Igor Stravinsky, 
where you've got this grand piano, it's all black, and Arnold Newman's right on the edge of frame. I've photographed great pianists through my career and have never, ever been remotely approached the power of that image. The greatest image of a person in a grand piano had been taken. I could not produce anything ever better. How do you feel about people like Noctaway and these guys who are out there in the trenches, you know, the, the war photographers and, you know, guys who get the shot of the Viet Cong shooting the guy in the head, like that sort of... Mm. I was in the pub talking uh, to a man last night and I talked to him about a war. I went to a war. I went to Beirut. Mm. It was the year of the child, 1978, I think. As the plane was coming into Beirut, the man who was sitting next to me he jumped up screaming. They shoot these down, they rocket these down. He ran screaming down the, the plane. Calmed down by the air hostess. We landed, uh, got into the main hall um, of, of Beirut Airport. Or oh, it seemed to be cows and donkeys in yeah. there or whatever. Uh, this guy said, oh, you want a cab? I said, yeah. He said, come with me then. And then all of a sudden this person grabbed me. He said, don't go with him. Because he'll kill you, you know, he'll tell you, rob you. And then he found a proper person I could go with. I went to my hotel, all been machine gunned in the front and everything like that. There were rockets exploding, explosions all around. I went up in my hotel. I felt I was the only one in the hotel. I never saw anybody there. I go down to the restaurant and it was like cabaret at night, a bit like Joel Grey in the film Cabaret with a big pink mouth looking at me and right in the face, you know. And I was waiting for my connection, Rudy. And I go across the green line to photograph this young soldier in the phalange. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I was young, so I, I felt quite brave, actually. I'd said to my girlfriend, don't expect me to come back. I felt I was going to die, actually. So I, had, I, I, I rambled on there, so I have tremendous respect for those wolf. It's just because you've got to have your, your head above the parapet to take the picture, haven't you? You can't dock down the trench. You've got to have your head above it. I remember a story about Noctua who used to wear a white shirt. He used to bring in his, in his luggage these pristine ironed white shirts and he would mm. go into the zone with this white yeah. purple, like again, soldiers and everything. Mm. And that was his way of saying, do not hit this thing in the white shirt on the photographer. I surrender. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, kind of just, you know, it, but he, he made a big, because yeah. most of them go in and battle fatigue. Oh, they do, yeah. To, you know, but he, he was saying, you know, here it is, don't shoot this. You know? Well, I think, we are, I mean, we had the greatest war photographer, I think, uh, it was um, Larry Burroughs. I think he was the greatest one, personally, for my taste. But obviously, I liked Francis Frith in the Crimea in the 19th century as yeah. well. I mean, those boys out yeah. there with cholera and everything, ah, oh, they're immensely brave war photographers. It's like so brave. I mean, I was only nonchalant. I think because I was so young, you know, when you're so young, you don't feel mm. fear, you don't yeah. fear very much. But also, if you don't have responsibilities. Yeah, I didn't have any that. children or anything. What do you, just moving away from photography and we finish up, uh, what, are, you, are you positive about the world in which we're ploughing headlong at the moment? No, I'm not that positive about it. I feel there's going to be massive changes after I've gone. You know, I think about all, all, all my, 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 my archives and everything. Will they exist a few years after I've gone? You know, my, what's going to happen to this world? It's a really frightening in the world at the moment, isn't it? And I really liked your early conversation about people going back, you know, to, to analogue in terms of music or analogue as we term it now in photography. Mm -hmm. It's great that these very youngsters, you know, and yeah. people are at Photography College returning to the past with materials and all sorts of things. Do you think people might rush back to to things gone by in order to save themselves from the future? The question of... Oh, whether, well, of what the future might hold. The question of, was there ever any good old days? I don't think there was. I, I think that we're mm. probably in the best time to be alive, even in terms of things like war and stuff. But that doesn't mean it's not scary still, because it was scary back then. Mm. And there's also more stuff to do us damage now than there was back then in terms mm. of countries with nuclear powers and all that that could just you know and ruin everything for us but things like hunger are coming down I'm, I'm torn because I agree with you my general view is it's pessimistic and we need to be 
more on top of looking after people who haven't got it enough and all this kind of stuff that we kind of seem to still be able to just dismiss. Last question, what would you say to you that time you got pulled out of school? I would say I was really lucky being pulled out of school at that point in time. How my life developed. And I had no knowledge how it would develop because it seemed like the end of the earth at that time. But my parents, I mean, I lived in a very disciplinarian society, whatever, like you did what your parents told you. There was no sort of like, you know, like... Discussion. Yeah, you did. If your dad said you've got to do that, you've got to do it. If your dad said you've got to be home for quarter to 11 at night, you had to be home at quarter to 11, as he'd be waiting for you, really angry. Um, so I accepted what I was told to do, although it was something I absolutely didn't want to do. And the worst part of it was they, they, they dragged me out of school, like, uh, I don't know, it seemed like on the Friday and I was in the factory on the Monday, which I didn't like that. But when I see of all the things, all that period of working in industry and that really helped me to develop uh, as a photographer. And without those qualities that uh, I was injected with, injected by, when I say injected, I mean... Uh, viewed, yeah, yeah, I've viewed, imbued with. I had no chance to avoid. Yeah, have actually played their major parts in another part of my life, really. And without them, I wouldn't be the man I am now, or the photographer I became, or have become. Everything works itself out. What would you say to a young photographer starting off, who's fifteen or so, and thinking of getting into photography? What advice would you give in a sentence? Um, I'd say you, you're going to have to be a very brave young man. But it affords a, a great, a great life. You know, it's a wonderful life, so nourishing. You know, the fact that you can sit in your armchair, you can eat some food, you can sleep in your bed, you can take your dog for a walk and think ideas and execute them. You know, it's a wonderful medium if you're a creative person, and it's it's so it exercises so much within you. It can take away all the pain that you feel inside or the troubles that you're encountering. It can help liberate you and can help cleanse you and help heal you because of how photography is, where you can get it out of your system through your creative uh, output. Brian Griffin, that was an absolute ride. I loved that discussion. I love the fact that you, you seem to have this amazing graphic memories of what went on in your life and the stories that you tell. Thank you so much for being on the planet with Shoni B. Keep working. Keep doing your projects. Do you want to say anything else before you go? I've really enjoyed being with you, Sean. Thank you. <laughs>